Are you ready to go off script? Let's see how the Bible challenges the roles the world has written for us. On average, 121 people commit suicide per day in America. It is now the 10th leading cause of death in this country. Can you imagine that? In this episode, we discuss this phenomenon and seek to understand what the Bible can teach us about this subject. In addition, we wrestle with a number of hard questions about suicide, such as, is suicide a sin? Will suicide bar someone from eternal life? How do we explain God strengthening Samson to commit suicide at the end of his life? How can we show compassion and love to those with suicidal thoughts? Lastly, we'll consider how the Bible provides hope for when we go through the darkest of times. This is part two in our series on killing. Our first part was on abortion, which was killing the unborn. This is part two, killing yourself, a Christian view of suicide. Here now is Offscript episode 35. Hello and welcome to Restitutio Offscript. Today we're talking about suicide, which is a really important subject. It's something that comes up a lot in our culture today. For example, there is a current TV show produced by Netflix called 13 Reasons Why, where a high school girl commits suicide and leaves behind a box of cassette tapes with 13 reasons why she killed herself. And this show is extremely popular. It's number two for streaming right now in 2017. And it's generally well-received among critics. However, this very show has caused controversy among educators and mental health professionals for fear of copycats. For example, the National Association of School Psychologists released a statement saying, that research shows that exposure to another person's suicide or to graphic or sensationalized accounts of death can be one of the many risk factors that youth struggling with mental health conditions cite as a reason they contemplate or attempt suicide. Likewise, the Society of Clinical Child and Adolescent Psychology released a statement talking about how a show about suicide can trigger self-injury as well. So this is very much an issue that is alive among youth in our culture today. It's also something that disproportionately affects older folks throughout the country. So this is something that is an important subject. Uh, there are a lot of different points of view on it. In this show, what we want to talk about is the Christian perspective on suicide. First of all, we want to ask the question, is there a Christian, a unified Christian perspective on this? What does the Bible say about this? And how do we deal with this subject in practical life? For example, if someone has a loved one who has committed suicide, what, what do we say when they ask us the hard questions and this sort of thing? So this is something that we want to talk about today. To provide a little context for this conversation, we'd like to right now go over some suicide statistics. These are statistics that deal with the United States uh, as opposed to worldwide. So let's just have that up front so you know. And I, for one, was surprised to see just how prevalent suicide is and, and self-harm is. So according to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, uh, the suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. There's about 44,000 suicides per year, successful suicides per year. Wait, how many did you say? 44,000. 44,000. Wow. Every year, 44,000 Americans die by suicide. Uh, and for every one suicide, 25 people attempt suicide. And suicide costs the United States $51 billion annually. So according to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, on average, there are 121 suicides per day in the country. Uh, firearms account for almost 50%. Uh, men die at three and a half times uh, of a rate than, than women do. And white males account for seven out of every 10 suicides in 2015, at least. Well, I think that is a pattern that has been in place for yeah. some time, for some years. I've heard that repeatedly, that older white men, mm -hmm. in particular yeah. in the Midwest says the rate of suicide is highest in middle age and white men in particular. Yeah. 
So watch out, Dan, someday. Yeah. <laughs> so there you have it. Obviously, it's a thing that pops up in pop culture all the time, and it's even romanticized. You think about, you know, Kurt Cobain and the curse of, what is it, 27 years old? Where Jimi Hendrix and Kurt Cobain and... Uh, Amy Winehouse and a lot of different rock stars seem to have perished that age and some of them from suicide. And I do think there's a certain amount of romanticism that gets played up around suicide. I think that adds into this creeping effect and the sort of con contagion effect that sometimes happens as well. Uh, and we can get into that too. One of the things I find incredibly surprising about suicide is how prevalent it is in America. For example, the homicide rate in America in 2014, according to the CDC, is something like 16 per 100,000, whereas the suicide rate is 41 per 100,000. So that's more than twice as many suicides as homicides. I mean, think about how many homicides we hear of in the news. Anytime a homicide happens, it's reported on. However, suicides are much less reported on because of fear of copycats. But this is a major problem that is afflicting thousands of people every year. I think we hear a lot less about suicides as well because there isn't a separate perpetrator and victim. So you don't have the, uh, you know. There's no villain. There's no path of justice. Yeah. Um, and there's no, really nothing else to be done after the suicide. And a lot of people will want to keep it quiet. I know working in the news business, there's sort of a hush-hush stigma around it. Unless you get somebody who, a parent, for instance, who wants to use their, their child's death as sort of a, a way to talk about the problems that their child had or sort of crusade against any cause. You see that a lot with, with different tragedies that happen. But barring that, I know that it's very hard to get information out of uh, official sources like police uh, or a coroner's office. And talking to a parent is obviously very difficult. There's a tendency towards sort of secrecy and sweeping it under the rug that I've seen in in reporting on uh, some cases of, of suicide that occurs. Yeah, this is a documented effect, and it's called the Werther effect from Goethe's novel, The Sorrows of Young Werther. From the 18th century, this novel described the suicide of a man because he couldn't be with his lover and how he shot himself. And... There were a lot of celebrity suicides right after this, or high, let's call it high-profile suicides after this, where they'd actually have this book open to the page where the guy killed himself and then kill themselves in that kind of situation. They'd be found like that. So this effect is something that people have studied, and they what they say is that when a celebrity person kills themselves or it doesn't have to be celebrity so a popular person or somebody that well, has a certain level of fame kills themselves then shortly after that you have a bump in suicides interestingly enough it's of people who are similar to that person mm -hmm. so if it's a young girl that committed suicide then you have a bump in suicides among young girls if it's an old rock star then uh, other old rock stars I guess <laughs> must uh, do it too what the psychologists and sociologists who study this phenomenon say is that these publications don't cause the suicide in, in the sense that they weren't ever thinking about suicide and then now they saw this so they committed suicide. It was more of a trigger. Like they were, they were going to probably do it anyhow or they were thinking about it for a long time and now this triggers a bunch at the same time. And so what I've heard, and, and you're confirming as well, Dan, is that in journalism, it's it's considered uncouth to publish suicide stories or at least shy away from using the word suicide or making it into something that could be imitated or put forward as a noble action. Reading, you know, poking around online about it, they say that the suicide contagion, you know, the primary vehicle is media coverage and they don't outright say that you know, suicide shouldn't be reported on at all because I think that presents its own problems. But when it is reported, it just has to be the facts. It can't glorify what happened at all. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services says, a federal agency says that you should avoid the repetitive uh, coverage of a suicide. You shouldn't divulge the exact way in which the suicide occurred. Personally, when it comes to suicide, it, it it's a hard thing. There have been times where I felt that it's important to get a certain piece of news out there about a suicide in times where I felt very intrusive. There was a case where there was a 15 year old <clears throat> kid who 
committed suicide in a local school district recently within the last year. And I'd gotten this tip and I didn't do anything about it. Got the tip and I ignored it. I didn't follow up on it at all. I was, you know, told by somebody with, with knowledge that it happened and I decided not to bring it to my editor at all. I just Mm. didn't feel like it was something that had any merit to report on. And it was, I think, a few weeks old at that point. So for me, it was, it was, it was a conflicting thing to report on, but not reporting on it. I mean, things like this happen. And if I had a kid in high school and one of their classmates, one of their peers committed suicide and they had questions, I would much rather them talk to me about their questions than sort of talk to only their friends or, you know, or, or see a guidance counselor or a therapist or something like that, where when tragedies like this happen, and I think this is the right thing to do, school districts often provide grief counselors. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a good way to, to make sure the kids have the resources to process what happened to their peer. And death for a kid is a very sort of fascinating, I think, and, and scary, but also, you know, there's a curiosity there. And instead of stifling that curiosity or tamping it down, that the information should be available to them if they want it. There's also this song that a Hungarian composer... I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this correctly, but Rezo Seris wrote in the 1930s, and the English translation comes across as Gloomy Sunday. This song was a major hit in 1933, and it was eventually covered by Billie Holiday in 1941, and reportedly there was a rash of suicides following this song, the song's release, and... Then after Billie Holiday's version of it started to become popular, the BBC banned it from playing until the year 2002. So suicide seems as contagious is what we're trying to say here. Mm. This is an identifiable phenomenon that happens across cultures, and it's something that a lot of people, a lot of public service people, take very seriously. Mm-hmm. And... Well, I, I guess my question is, from a Christian point of view, though, how do we process this differently than people who don't believe in Christ? I mean, there, there is a, a significant difference here. Mm. I think a Christian's worldview is or should be informed by the hope that we have for Christ's return, for for eternal life. It's It's a different mindset. I mean, as a secular person who is contemplating suicide, the barrier for action is probably a little lower for than for a Christian who even one that's maybe having doubts just because the Christian outlook on, you know, how you live your life, what you, the things you do, the things you don't do, it should be oriented around. It's, it's not about living for yourself. It's, it's about living for, for a higher goal. You're part of something bigger. And I think that's a very effective way to not, be so self-absorbed. And I think a lot of suicides come down to people being very caught up in their present current circumstances and not sort of being part of a larger, be a community or life goal or outlook or philosophy on life. It, it's very sort of inward facing current situation, life circumstance point of view. And as a Christian, we strive to to radiate Christ's love and to be an example of radical love. And that's a very outward facing service oriented mindset. And so, yeah, I think Christians are or should be a lot less susceptible or prone to suicidal tendencies. Not to say that it doesn't ever happen. I mean, people are people and you know, there, there are hard times, but the Bible is a nearly infinite source of hope and of uh, guidance and support. And I am quite sure, even though I have no empirical evidence of it, but I'm quite sure that the Bible has <laughs> prevented uh, suicide, many suicides. Mm, yeah. Well, it's interesting, though, that in the Bible, there are seven instances where people actually did commit suicide. And I thought maybe we'd just run through those quickly just to show how these various incidents are portrayed as a way of getting at what the Bible's position is on this subject. So the first one up is Abimelech in Judges chapter 9. Abimelech had approached a tower and fought against it, 
and got near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And then a woman threw an upper millstone from above and it landed on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. And he knew he was about to die, so he turned to his armor bearer and said, draw out your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed him. And his young man, it says, thrust him through and he died. So this is suicide by armor bearer for the sake of what? Pride. <laughs> <laughs> for embarrassment. Shape, for shaping your legacy, <laughs> if you can. It's interesting, too, because although Abimelech's desire was to prevent people from saying a woman killed Abimelech, mm. hundreds of years later, when David was getting a communication from Joab about Uriah, that a number of the people had gone near to the city and they took some casualties that David said to the messenger, don't you remember Abimelech and how he was killed because he got too close yeah, to the city wall the tower. he was killed by a woman? Mm-hmm. And uh, so even though he desired to not have that legacy, that's in fact pretty much the only military yeah. thing he was remembered for. That's his footnote. <laughs> so that's, that's one example. Uh, so that's a person that was actually already dying and just wanted to die quicker. Then you have Saul, very similar kind of scenario where he is in a battle with the Philistines and he is struck by arrows and he said to his armor bearer, draw your sword, thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. And then his armor bearer wouldn't do it. He wouldn't kill his king. And so Saul ended up falling on his sword and then his armor bearer apparently despaired or got bold or something, and he also fell on his own sword. So Mm. this is another incident, very similar kind of thing, where we're in warfare and it was a a situation of shame or embarrassment, and to avoid that, they kill themselves. I think it's important to sort of put a caveat here and talk about how these three examples so far have been, as you said, in a military context. And I know even as recent as World War II, agents were given, and perhaps even today, agents are given methods to kill themselves, to prevent themselves from falling into enemy hands. I mean, Saul said it, said right there, you know, lest these uncircumcised, lest I fall into the hands of these uncircumcised and they mistreat me. I mean, it's not a, hey, I'm despairing, I'm, I'm you know, at the end of my rope and that's why I'm going to do it. It's, it's more, the alternative is worse than, right. than suicide. Mm-hmm. And I think in the context that we're talking about it here, it's, it's not that military context. So, yeah. so far we haven't had a case where we can really like sort of. Well, and the other thing that we haven't had is the Bible mm-hmm. commenting right on whether it's good or bad it's these these incidents we've seen whether with abimelech or saul or saul's armor bearer they're just a narration of events just a statement of what happened doesn't Mm -hmm. say and thus he brought shame upon himself it doesn't say anything Mm -hmm. like that it doesn't say it's good or noble either it's just like this is what happened we can at the end of the list i think look back and um draw general conclusions about the morality of the men who did commit suicide but we'll wait yeah the next one is Ahithophel, who was a key advisor to David and then became a counselor for Absalom after the rebellion and the coup. And what ended up happening there is that Ahithophel's advice was not heeded, mm-hmm. and David and his men were able to get the upper hand. And it says, this is 2 Samuel seventeen twenty three. when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed... He saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself, and he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. And again, once again, there's no comment whether this is mm. good or bad. It's just like this is what the guy did. He, His purpose in life was as a counselor, and the way it, it's, it talks about him in Second Samuel is that this guy had crazy wisdom and insight, mm-hmm. and his advice was always the best. And it actually... Even when the advice is not followed, his advice was still better than the other guy because the other guy was actually a spy for David. Mm-hmm. And so for this case, it's like a loss of purpose. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily a military context. It's a loss Fut- of purpose. Futility. Yeah. And then the next one is Zimri, who was a king of Israel who took the throne for seven days in Terza. And this is First Kings 16. And it talks about how after he took the throne that the commander of his army, a guy named Omri, was able to win the people, and he came to attack. And when he did, Zimri saw that the city was taken. 
he went into the king's house and burned it over him and died in the king's house. So what would you call that one? It's just like an unwillingness to face... Yeah, defeat. Mm-hmm. Face defeat, yeah. Un- like, he's not going to lose. He's, he's going to... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's when you face inevitable ruin, you take matters into your own hands. Yeah, that reminds me of, like, the stock market crash mm-hmm. suicides of the 1920s. Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler knew he was about to be publicly shamed or, or brought to justice, and so he killed himself. Yeah, that's, that's another kind of situation so we're sort of getting around to more modern relatable i guess if i can use that word (laughs) uh reasons you know being at the end of your role facing defeat facing utter ruin desperation then we've got two more we've got judas the most famous suicide in Mm -hmm. all of the bible and in matthew 27 it says that when he saw when judas saw that jesus was condemned he changed his mind and he brought the money back to the chief priests and the elders, and he said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And so he threw down the pieces of silver into the temple, and he went away, and it says he hanged himself. So Judas is in a a state of total regret and guilt, Mm -hmm. and he doesn't see a way to continue living. Like, he just takes matters into his own hands by now i think we have listeners that are chomping at the bit because we might have forgotten one (laughs) and so we did we forgot (laughs) one uh which is samson because samson is really the only if we could call it noble suicide in the entire bible that's maybe questionable but samson had been captured by the philistines they had gouged out his eyes They, they had blinded him they had sort of used him as entertainment and they were calling him out to entertain them and they made him stand between these two pillars and Samson said to the young man nearby let me feel the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against them you get the totally sense, deceptive <laughs> yeah you get the sense that he was being sort of tormented that he was being brought out to be made sport of yeah. to uh, similar to you know when trophy. Jesus was mocked uh, at his crucifixion yeah. And it says that the place was full of 3,000 men and women. Mm. And that at that moment, Samson's hair, of course, had grown back out. And he called out to God and said, Oh, Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, Oh, God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And then he grabbed the two middle pillars on which the house rested and he leaned his weight against them. And he was, then he said, let me die with the Philistines. And then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords, and he was able to bring the whole place down. And he ended up killing more people in his death than he had killed in all his 20 years of fighting against the Philistines while he was alive. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, what do you guys make of that one? Because God is obviously complicit in the suicide if he actually gave him the strength to do this. It is very different um, from all the other suicides, and we we do know that God enabled him to do that. You could also argue that it wasn't a straight suicide. I mean, it was to avenge the fact that the Philistines had taken out his eyes. It was to, I think if Samson, by some miracle, had survived that, he wouldn't have gone out and killed himself necessarily. Maybe, you know, we we, we don't know, but the main no, objective... I don't get the impression he wanted to die. It was right. just like that was the only... <clears throat> I don't know. It seemed like he did want to die because release wasn't an option. If release was an option, then he probably well, would not Well, that's what I'm saying. If he, if he had somehow survived that, would he have gone and then, you know, jumped off a cliff? I mean, that's... Um, I guess my point is that the main objective... With all these other cases, the main objective is to end your own life. The main objective here is, is sort of revenge and... Um, suicide is sort of a byproduct of that. Right. So you could make the case that it wasn't as cut and dry and it's not as cut and dry. And then you add in the fact that, you know, God obviously gave him strength and the Philistines are the historical enemies of Israel. What if somebody pointed to this passage and said, this authorizes terrorist behavior because you're killing yourself in order to kill other people? Never heard that. <laughs> You could make that case, I suppose. Samson, um, this was his specific calling. He was picked out from God from before birth. 
um, to be a Nazarite who would be special to God, who um, would judge the people and defend them against the Philistines. So this was, and apparently um, since God enabled him to do this in this case, this is what he was called to do at that time in history. Mm. It was um, a call that was specific to him. Yeah, we have a different call, and that is to love our enemies. Um, so <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> I don't think I don't think we can go back to um, the Old Testament and based on you know this specific case and that covenant making any sort of case for terrorism at all when we have the yeah. words of Christ. It's just interesting though if you look at all these seven incidents in the Bible that none of them are condemned. Mm. None of them have a verse afterwards that says, and he took the coward's way out. Like even Judas, it just, right. it just describes what he did. There's no editorializing about it. There, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, there, and there's no other speech that I'm aware of in Scripture where somebody condemns it as a sin. Or if it's in a list, think of it in the New Testament, those vice lists where mm-hmm. you have liars and adulterers mm-hmm. and fornicators and drunkards. Suicide is not in those lists either. Mm-mm. So the, the Bible, to, to a large degree, either just doesn't weigh in on it specifically, or I don't know, maybe it's just not a concern because it, there's no extensive treatment of the subject anywhere. Yeah, but I think more generally you can apply verses in the Bible that make it clear God's attitude that God loves each and every one of us, that he has a plan for us, that Satan is is the God of death and... In Jeremiah 29, 11, it says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. I mean, that's the antithesis of suicide. And that's God's heart that he's sharing there. What's fascinating about that, too, is that Jeremiah 29 is at the absolute lowest point in Israel's entire history. They had just been taken out of their land. They're under foreign rule in Babylon. And... Essentially, Jeremiah's message is, yeah, and this is God's judgment, and it's not going away. So you need to stay where you are in that foreign land, and you need to seek the peace of the city, and you need to get married, you need to have kids, and keep the faith, and eventually, God's going to bring you back. Mm -hmm. And his ultimate plans for Israel are to give them hope and give them a future, to bring. and that's what he did. He brought them back to the land 70 years later. But even in the most dire moment of the the pit of Israelite history, there's still hope Mm -hmm. to get them through where suicide would not be at all condoned. Yeah. In the New Testament, it says in John 10, 10, this is Jesus speaking, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So if Jesus' purpose is to bring us life Mm -hmm. and we bring ourselves death, then we're going against what Jesus is doing. For me, I have three main points on it from a biblical point of view. I've got the Imago Dei, the idea that we're created in God's image Mm. with incredible value and dignity as a result of that. What does that one say? 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I would look at it like this. If an artist painted a landscape and the artist spent, let's say, a week working on it every day for hours every day. And at the end of that week, she had herself a masterpiece. You know, as far as she's capable, this is this is just... The, the absolute best she can do. And she feels that it came out even better than she thought it would. Mm. Then that year, later that year, she gives it to a family member, maybe her parents, as a gift. And she says, I worked really hard on this. This is something that means a lot to me, but, and I'm not going to sell it. I'm going to give it to you because it's just so valuable. I, I wouldn't want someone else to have it, but I want you to have it. Now, if their parents hawked it at a garage sale that summer, <laughs> I mean, how, how would that reflect on the artist herself? How, how would she feel about that if she found out? And she came home to her parents' house, and she's like looking around like, where's that painting? And they're like, oh, yeah, we got rid of it at the garage sale. Don't worry, we got a good price. <laughs> I mean, how, how would she feel? She'd be devastated. Mm-hmm. Devastated trade. because of the value she places 
on it and the dignity she uh, and the work that mm. she put into it and what it meant to give it. And so God gives us, he gives our lives value. He gives us dignity. And if we just throw our lives away, then that's spitting in the face of our creator. And so it doesn't, it, for me, it, it makes sense that if, if our lives do have value and if they are a gift from God, that we should therefore be thankful and not pour them out like a cup of water on the grass. Mm. And then my number two is that we're supposed to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's not loving to God to kill yourself because God, as you already pointed out, Dan, loves us. And so... And you can't do anything with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength if you're not alive. Right, mm. right. And then the other, the third is to love your neighbor as yourself. And that, I think, is really one of the strongest most obvious reasons not to commit suicide because it absolutely devastates everybody around you because everyone's going to have survivor's guilt. Everyone's going to think, oh, I should have reached out. Oh, I should have done this. I should have done that. Maybe they killed themselves because of me. It, it will, I don't know what the stat is, but it will ruin marriages uh, of the parents of the person who, who killed themselves. Uh, it will ruin children of the person who killed themselves. It ruined friends. I mean, it, it, it's just like a, a social bomb that goes off in its destructiveness. And there's no way to like live that down or make it right because the person's gone. My coworker's son committed suicide last fall and we had never met him. Um, and our entire workplace was, was wrecked. I was in tears. We had a counselor come in and speak to us, similar to what you were talking about earlier, Dan. And I think like, um, it is still very palpable to me. I still remember that day and everything that went down and everyone I talked to and everyone I hugged that day. It is still an incredible burden to me. Um, she got the news at work. The just, you know, her experiencing the trauma and us witnessing her experience it in that way will never be the same again. That boy that I never met, um, that burden will, and that um, heartache will always be on us. Yeah, you can have secondhand trauma from that. Now, let me ask you this. And this, this is one of the most difficult pastoral questions to, to ever face. If somebody says to you, what about the salvation of a loved one? Are they going to be okay with God? Are they going to have eternal life? Or is suicide a deal breaker? I mean, what would you say to somebody in that who asked that? Uh, first off, I hope to never have to field that question. <laughs> Secondly, <clears throat> I probably would say something like, that God is the ultimate judge, that God, he knows the hearts of men. He knows our frame. I wouldn't be able to, in sincerity, give somebody an answer one way or another. I don't think anyone really could. I mean, you look at Jesus on the cross and pardoning the sinner that was next to him. There's an example right there of just sort of immediate forgiveness, immediate salvation and who's to say that that can't ever happen again who's to say that that was a, a singular time yes it's a singular time in the bible but as i said god is the god is the ultimate judge and that is really up to him that's not the most comforting thing but it's also not the least comforting thing either mm -hmm. rose what about you has it been the teaching of the catholic church in the past that if you committed suicide i think so yeah. you could not go to purgatory or heaven that you would automatically go to hell I've heard that. Yeah, I, I think so. From what I understand, Augustine uh, very much equated suicide with murder, right. as probably do most Christians, Self because you're, you, I mean, just like the word suicide itself, mm -hmm. it, means, it means killing yourself, right. uh, as opposed to homicide is killing a man or killing a woman. Then Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages said that because confession is impossible after mm -hmm. you've killed yourself that you're dying in sin apart from the grace of the church mm. and so it is a uh, damnable sin as a result a few hundred years later after him dante one of his rings of hell was for suicide oh wow i think that argument holds zero water because if you've lived your your life or you're currently living your life at the time of your death as a christian but there's a sin that you haven't repented of or that you, that you had, maybe you don't even know that it's a sin. Mm. Is God going to condemn you? 
that I mean, that's ultimately up to God and we can't say one way or another, but to make that a hard and fast rule, that's well, theologically the, problematic. Rose asked if it was the Catholic position. Oh, I thought <laughs> you were making the Thomas Aquinas thing as part of the podcast. It's like part of the... No, I think him speaking to that is good. Okay. Well, I, I was answering her. She said, mm-hmm. what do Catholics think? Yeah. Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and Dante are all Catholics. So mm-hmm. I was sure. trying to give that answer. I'm not... No, I wasn't well, pushing back on you. I was mm-hmm. pushing back on what they were saying. You make a good point there, Dan. It's interesting. There's a website called ChristianAnswers.net, which I don't recommend you ask questions of, honestly. Uh, and uh, <laughs> on this <laughs> on this website, it says that the problem with the Catholic view of Thomas Aquinas is that he represents a gross misunderstanding of eternal security, which Scripture clearly teaches... We are saved by the grace of God, not by works. And nothing can separate a Christian from the love of God. And so basically this, I'm guessing, evangelical website is saying that because we're once saved, always saved, suicide is not a deal breaker for salvation. I mean, that if, you're, if you really believe in eternal security, whether from a predestination or free will perspective, either side of that that you want to go on, if you really believe in eternal security, then suicide, homicide, sure. genocide, I mean, whatever kind of side Any side, you want, any side. <laughs> could kill animals and torture, I mean, whatever it is, mm-hmm. you're still going to be saved because you're once saved, always saved. But from what I see in Scripture, there are so many verses that disprove this mindset of eternal security. For example, I'll just give you one example, Romans 11 the cultivated olive tree of faith talks about how the Jews were this olive tree that God had been working with for all these centuries, and basically they are the ones that are saved, and that if they have unbelief, he will break off those branches. And we, Gentiles, being a wild olive tree, if we do have faith, he will graft us into the cultivated olive tree. And it says we stand by our faith. You know, And the clear implication there in Romans 11 is that you can cease to believe. You can walk away. You can fall away. And the same point is made repeatedly in Hebrews where it says, hold fast, like a million times. And Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, I don't want to get all theological on everybody here, but is very clear throughout the New Testament that salvation is conditioned on perseverance, not the other way around, that perseverance is conditioned on salvation. And if you're saved, then no matter what, you're going to persevere. So I don't think, as far as we at this table are concerned, can go in this direction and be like, oh, well, you have eternal security anyhow, so suicide's no big deal. We don't have that kind of like safety blanket to throw over our, ourselves or to comfort someone with who it's is an, in tragedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would strongly argue that suicide is sin. Yeah. That killing yourself or killing someone else, that, that, is, that is a sin. I'm not saying that it's the unforgivable sin. I mean, it certainly is the final sin, mm-hmm. because if, you're, if you commit suicide, then by definition, you can't do anything after that to repent. I'm not prepared to say that anybody gets a free pass and it's not a big deal. I mean, mm-hmm. this is huge. This is absolutely devastating. Like I said before, it's like a bomb spiritually, socially, financially, in, in every way. This is, this is really a, a, just a, an incredibly destructive thing to do. If somebody came to me and said, my son killed himself and i didn't want to know are they going to be in the kingdom quite honestly i would find it impossible to give a definitive answer to that because of what you just said about all right if you're living righteously and then you have about a depression and some of the facts too about suicide are totally weird there can be like a five second impulse that people have, mm-hmm. especially if they're walking over a bridge yeah. or they're on a high, they're in a high place where they can throw themselves off mm-hmm. where from the time they have the thought that pops in their head to mm-hmm. the time they act, it can be as short as five seconds mm-hmm. and then they're flying down. And there's also a demonic element here that we're not, we're not even touching on, which you got to, you got to figure if there are evil mm-hmm. spirits, then mm-hmm. they would be involved here of all places. Mm-hmm. There are other studies that have, spoken with suicide attempt survivors who say that while they were, you know, plummeting to their death or, you know, while they were recovering or after they had pulled the trigger, they had, the, they had like that instant of regret that no, they didn't want to do this. Right. And how would God look at that? I think the finality of it can be very sobering mm. once you realize there is no turning right. back. That you, 
Did you want to add anything on to what to say to people? I mean, obviously, we want to be compassionate. Right. right. <laughs> We're talking to the survivor. They're in incredible pain. Right. Well, if someone asks me if anyone who has passed away is going to be in the kingdom, we cannot say that about anyone for certain. Right, because we're agree. not the ones who decide that. Yeah. And if I God would... wants to show mercy to somebody above and beyond what the scripture says, then Just he can wrong. do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's like the thief on the cross. Mm-hmm. We have some Manasseh, the king, king Manasseh, absolutely way beyond the pale, total yeah. wacko, killed many innocent people, mm-hmm. and yet he repented and God forgave him. So... Mm-hmm. I certainly would not presume upon God's mercy mm. and kill myself thinking, oh, well, God will probably just forgive me. Mm-hmm. I, that, to me, that is, that is absolutely foolish. Mm-hmm. For unbelievers, unbelievers are not coming into the kingdom regardless of, of the way that they pass away. We need to speak in love and we need to talk about the hope that we have in Christ and the hope of resurrection that we have for believers, for people. We don't want to come across as really harsh or judgmental, but we know that for a, a believer um, who takes their own life, we don't know. It's difficult to know the circumstances around it. I would agree that suicide is sin. Um, I think your life as a believer, the very nature of it is that you have given um, control of your life over to God, that you are surrendered, that you call him Lord, that you do what he says. I don't think you can twist um, scripture around in a way that would convince me that taking your life in just about any circumstance would be his will and that you would be following him. That would be, in a sense, you resting control of your life back away from him. One of the things I want to say off what you said, Rose, is that in the ancient world, the Roman Empire, suicide was very common and accepted, especially at the highest levels of power. It was not unheard of for someone to kill themselves if their mission or their or if they failed in some way and it was considered honorable also in japanese culture as we know suicide is considered honorable and someone who was living in that culture in a position of power uh, as a tutor to constantine was a man named lactantius from the early fourth century and he writes if a murderer is guilty because he's a destroyer of man He who kills himself is under the same guilt, for he also kills a man. In fact, this crime can be considered to be greater, for the punishment of it belongs to God alone. We did not come into this life of our own accord, therefore we can withdraw from this habitation of the body only by the command of him who placed us in this body. We are to inhabit it until he orders us to depart from it. Now, I might disagree with his view of life after death, but... It's just an, a, a, kind of like a chilling example of someone who is really bucking against the common accepted wisdom of honorable suicide in that culture. However, at roughly the same time, there was a great persecution in the Roman Empire that Eusebius, the church historian, lived through. So this is, once again, the early 4th century, and he talks about people who commit suicide honorably in order to... Let me just read what he wrote here. He's, this is from uh, his church history book, 8, paragraph 12. A certain saintly person whose woman's body contained an admirable soul was widely known at Antioch for her wealth, birth, and sound judgment. She had raised on pious principles two virgin daughters whose, whose youthful beauty was in full bloom, evoking a great desire to find out their hiding place from the Roman soldiers who were persecuting them. When it was learned that they were living in a foreign country, they were purposely recalled to Antioch, where they were at the mercy of the soldiers. When the women saw that she when the woman saw that she and her daughters were in great jeopardy, she alerted them to the dreadful things that awaited them, including the most terrible of all, the threat of fornication. She persuaded her girls and herself to shut up their ears to the, to the least whisper of such a thing and said that surrendering their souls to demonic slavery was worse than any form of death. The only way to escape from it was to flee to the Lord. Agreeing on this, they arranged their clothes, and when they had come to the midpoint of their journey, they modestly asked the guards to excuse them for a moment and threw themselves into the river that flowed by. What do you think about that? So suicide to prevent from sinning? It's suicide to prevent becoming a sex slave. Right. And they don't want that, like, it's, for them, it's, they're not saying it's sin for them, but it's still a sin. Well, they said the greatest They don't want to be an of object all. of sin. You know what I mean? Not that they're... Right. So they don't want to be the means by which right. people sin. Right. They don't want to okay. be the means by which people sin. And they, they, don't, they want to be used for God's glory and not for fornication. What do, you, what do you think? Do you think this is an exception? 
uh, I think we'll probably come back to this later since we're almost out of time here for today. But like, what about if you're a burden on your family financially because of all your health uh, issues, you have a poor quality of life, the medication is not working, you have to make a decision. Do you take the treatment or do you allow the disease to run its course? Or you want to die because you're in pain. Or or you're in horrible pain. I mean, there are these other scenarios for suicide other than just like feeling really depressed, like there's no purpose to go on. And I I feel like we do want to be nuanced in our treatment of the subject Mm -hmm. that I'm not reading to you from Plato's Republic here. I mean, this is a church history book. Not that I agree with everything he says, but these are what some Christians have, have thought and done in the past. And it's not the mainstream. The mainstream went with Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and Dante to saying, this is an unpardonable sin because it's the last sin you commit, and therefore you're automatically damned to hell. In that example, you have a passive and an active immorality. They didn't want to be involved in passive immorality by being forced into slavery, um, but they did commit, presumably, um, an active immorality in that they chose to take their own lives. All right, one more quick one. This is just the paragraph before what I read from uh, Eusebius's Ecclesiastical History. At Antioch, they were roasted on hot gridirons for prolonged torture, not seared to death. Rather than touch the cursed sacrifice, some stuck their hands directly into the fire. Others, to escape such trials, threw themselves down from the roofs of tall houses before they were caught regarding the death as a prize snatched from the wicked. This was suicide to avoid the giving, giving the torturers the pleasure of torture and the pleasure of killing them. So sort of like stealing that satisfaction from these, these people. Also, there was probably a practical element in that before they were tortured or while they were tortured, presumably they would be giving up grilled people. for yeah, people's mm-hmm. other Christians. Or pressure to recant. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't know what to say about these. I just wanted to bring them up mm-hmm. because it is part of the record the Christian record on the subject and suicide is not just like one thing. There are very different ways of thinking about it. You think about Jesus by staying in the garden, he's committing suicide. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, he knew they were coming. Well, he He, knew he was going to his death. He know, he knew he was going to his death. He knew it was going to happen to him. So in in a sense, he did willingly give himself up to death Mm -hmm. for the sake of everyone else. And we don't look at Jesus and say, Oh, what a dishonorable thing. I wonder if he's going to be saved, (laughs) right? We say, well, this is the most incredible, and that's self-sacrifice. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think there is room for, I think there is a difference. the opposite of Samson. He sacrificed himself to kill others. Jesus sacrificed himself to save others. I think there's a nuance there between suicide and self-sacrifice. I think if I'm a member of the early church that's being persecuted in, in Rome, and I know you know, everything there is about the Christian early church and I'm about to get captured. And the only way is to fling myself off of this building. Uh, that would obviously be a tough decision, but would God look at that and be like, no, you committed suicide. You're out. Like, I can't say that. In fact, if I had to guess, I would say that, that God would look at that as a self-sacrifice because if you were captured, you more than likely would have given up those names and it would have caused a lot of persecution for, for the church. And, you know, God can, you can also make the argument that God could, God could save you at the last minute. And, and should you right. never you give up short, short circuit God from right. pull, pulling you out of a situation either. Right. So there's a, there's a ton, there's just, as you said, there's just a ton of nuance in, in these, in these, Things. Yeah. And like if mm-hmm. if your wife or somebody that you love very dearly is in an intense amount of pain and they want to die, I mean, how do you how do you handle that? Are you, do you tell somebody that's facing that situation that no, prolong their suffering to the point where they feel like they're torturing their loved one? That's a very hard yeah. topic as well. Mm-hmm. Well, it's an important topic, and we mm-hmm. will come back to it in a future episode. As as we're kind of winding down, we do w- want to be sensitive to any of those out there who have lost a loved one, mm-hmm. or in addition to that, if you yourself are struggling with this subject, you're, you're, you have suicidal thoughts, you have thought about this, and you're trying to decide what to do, what Dan said earlier is extremely applicable, that the Bible gives us hope. And we're not just talking about hope one day by and by, but hope right here and right now that there is a God, he does love you, and he can pull you through mm. the darkest of times. 
I'm reminded of Habakkuk chapter 3, where the prophet is utterly depressed about the situation. He complains to God in the beginning of the book for all the injustice he sees around him. And God's response is, you're right. I, should, I am going to do something about this injustice. I'm going to bring this foreign nation here, and it's going to conquer you. And Habakkuk's like, that's not the solution I was looking for. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so after hearing about what God's plans are to decimate his own people for their sins, this is what he says. He, he, he hears, I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet... I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Mm. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. And so I think this is just a tremendous example of all the wheels falling off. You're going through economic tragedy and disaster. There's no produce. There's no olives on the trees anymore. And yet he still very much intentionally decides to rejoice in God, to, re- to take refuge in the fact that there is a God and that he does have a plan and he is working history out in a certain direction. And ultimately, that cl- that will climax with the return of Christ and the establishment of a kingdom wherein we will have peace and justice for all. That's a beautiful passage. Um, a verse that I think gives me great hope and encouragement and strength um, is from Hebrews 6. Dan earlier talked about the life we have in Christ and that it is steady and... Um, that it is the foundation for our lives, unlike our own, the idols that we chase of this world, our own successes and our own, the way we feel about ourselves, our own egos. When those things fail us, um, that is often what drives us into feelings of depression and failure. Uh, Hebrews 6 talks about a different foundation, a different anchor for the soul. And talking about um, the promise that was given to Abraham and then also the sacrifice that we have through Christ, the writer of Hebrews says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Um, Then talking about the sacrifice that we have through Christ and the salvation we have, it enters the inner sanctuary beyond the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. These things are forever. They are firm and secure. It is an anchor for our soul, unlike the failures of our life and and the things that come to an end and, you know, the hopes dashed on the rocks or however we we envision our life. This is what we have firm and secure um, that will be unfading for us. And that gives us a reason to live beyond the temporal failures and frustrations that we face. Also, Paul in Philippians, writing Philippians was a prison epistle. He had sort of faced what a lot of people on the outside might have considered the failure of his ministry. He's under house arrest. He's in Rome. He is not on his fourth missionary, anything like that out there, spreading the gospel, going from town to town as he has before. He's under house arrest in Rome, and it really seems like he's lost and he's failed. He has a very different perspective, and he is thinking about death. He says, if I am to go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. For love um, of the gospel and whatever opportunities God will give you um, in your failures and, and in your frustrations, Paul stayed on. And he wrote this incredible book of Philippians, which has given, I mean, you talked, Dan, about the Bible giving people reason to live. Philippians will give you that joy through suffering and that encouragement. Philippians has a a more concentrated number of usages of the word joy than Mm -hmm. any other book. Yeah, the prison. Ironic, considering he's in prison and he's miserable and there's people out to get him, and yet he still has joy. Or you think of the time when he was in jail and he was singing praise songs. Mm Mm-hmm. And you're not singing praise songs because your back feels good, because it doesn't. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's ribbons of flesh at this point. But there's still joy to be had, not because of the suffering, but because that God is still with you, because God is suffering alongside you, because God ultimately is going to make everything wrong with the world right. Mm-hmm. And part of that is the suffering that we face. 
And seeing these persecuted believers um, and all the suffering that they endured, you kind of get the sense that they saw things very clearly in that moment that they understood what the real treasure was Mm. um, and that they were able to have joy that was so independent of their circumstances because they felt in a more real way than probably any of us have the treasure that they had in Christ. Paul calls it the secret. Mm-hmm. That I can do all things. The Well, yeah, being content in, in with having much and having little. Mm-hmm. The last thing we'd like to say is that, you know, suicide is a very serious thing. It's, it's all over our culture. It, as we've heard, it affects a lot of people in this country every day. And God forbid, if, if you're having any kind of uh, struggles with this, um, please reach out to somebody, whether in your community, whether professionally, if you need help right now, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is one 800 273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. And if you go online, there are also online chat options available to you. It's interesting that the uh, services available for suicide prevention are all real people yeah. willing to talk. Yeah. yeah, you're not getting a robot. Right. And that's so instructive too, because what you, what you really need is just somebody else to talk to. Mm-hmm. And then the impulse is like a wave and then it's gone and then you're okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you, you can't give up that fight. You got to keep fighting and you fight for your yourself. You fight for, because of God, you fight because of other people. And there are other people willing to fight with you. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Finally, for, for us in the church and then also in our relationships with people outside of the church, we have the responsibility um, to have each other's backs and to watch for clues um, in each other's lives and to understand how each other are doing. In Galatians 6, Paul says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ, as Christ, in fact, carried our burdens to the cross. That is the relationship that we are supposed to have with each other, Um, and to understand where other people are. I think this is the the biggest thing we can do for suicide prevention for the people in our lives um, is to open ourselves to them and to be attuned to what's going on in their lives. For so many people, suicide is a possibility because they feel incredibly alone and opening up to someone is just not going to happen. If we put ourselves out there as being that person that you can talk to, um, knowing where each other are and having the mind that Christ had for us to bear each other's burdens, um, that is the greatest extension of love, I believe, that we can give to a hurting world. Thank you so much for listening, guys. We hope you join the conversation. Um, We hope this is something that you are aware of in your life and then also in the lives of others. Seek to live a life for God. We love you guys. Have a good week. Well, I realized that was a bit longer than our standard off-script episode, but there was just so much complexity to this topic that I didn't feel comfortable editing it any shorter than this. In addition, I wanted to read out some of the feedback we received on last week's off-script episode, off-script 34, Killing the Unborn. We had uh, a few quite extensive comments on here, the first of which is from Barbara Buzzard who writes, Sean, thank you for tackling this subject. I know that the very emotional topic of the life of the mother comes up very early in any conversation about abortion. I found the words of the former Surgeon General of the U.S. to be profound. Quote, protection of the life of the mother as an excuse for an abortion is a smokescreen. In my 36 years in pediatric surgery, I have never known of one instance where the child had to be aborted to save the mother's life, end quote. Former abortionist Dr. Anthony Levatino similarly says that none of the abortions he performed to save the life of the mother were actually necessary. Also enlightening is this comment from a rape victim, quote, I got over the rape, I never got over the abortion, end quote. Regarding protesters outside abortion clinics, many of the those present are simply engaged in a prayer vigil, and there are frequent testimonies such as this one. This little girl is alive today because pro-life people were outside the abortion clinic. Abortion workers in those clinics have also testified that they were moved to quit their jobs due to the prayer warriors outside. And what a difference it makes when some of those praying and protesting are men. It seems that abortion is never necessary to save a woman's life. What it does is to preserve the lifestyle of the mother. The actual result of an abortion is that the mother has now become the mother of a dead baby. Can our moral senses survive if we accept this? Also, Miranda wrote in, Rape is a crime, but the baby is innocent and deserves to live and to be loved and cared for the same as any other baby. People must learn to be unselfish. 
Then last of all, John Raftos wrote an extensive comment, too long for me to read out here, in which he critiqued four points of our case and claimed that we use the law of Moses, that we were making inferences from scriptures, that we isolated scriptures, and that we made strong, bold declarations as proof. Having read through this, maybe I'm just not quite getting it, but it seems like what Raftos is arguing for is a skepticism on this point. In other words, that no one can know what the Bible says about abortion, uh, that uh, no one can say because the Bible doesn't directly address this subject what God's heart is on this subject. And, uh, well, certainly do appreciate you writing in, John, and I will take into consideration what you've said here. But um, I have to say, I don't find it very convincing at this point. But thank you so much for all of you who have written in. And I encourage you that if anyone wants to see the various sides of this, from uh, Barbara Buzzard's very strong stand against abortion to John Raftos's stand against, I guess, against a conclusion on the subject, uh, please head on over and add your voice to the mix at restitudio.org, and you can look up Offscript 34, Killing the Unborn, and get your comment in there. Also, while you're over there, why not check out this episode, Offscript 35, and add in any comments you have or experience in working with those who um, who struggle with suicidal thoughts and Uh, deal with the suffering that goes along with this uh, horrible tragedy that we're seeing played out over and over in our country today. These are not the cheeriest subjects in the world, but you know what? They're important, and we, we need God's guidance on these issues of life. So thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time as we seek to get off the world script and live out authentic Christianity.